0: Stocks for Beginners.
1: So, an investor is somebody who really understands a business, buys into the business to participate in the growth in earnings and the growth in dividends and free cash flow over the very long term, and they're really not concerned about the, the asset value and the fluctuations. I mean, anybody who is worried about what the Fed might have to say, who's worried about what a company might have to say at quarterly earnings, who checks their share price weekly or monthly, I, I would actually classify them as traders, but they're probably lousy traders because they don't view themselves as traders,
0: so they haven't learnt the proper risk management framework. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatillo. Is your life vague, fuzzy, and unplanned? I know mine is. Are you a victim of circumstance? All the time. My guest today believes that by taking control, you can design your life to achieve your goals. Hello, Simon. Hi, Phil. How are you? Good, good. Thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure. Now, Simon Ree is the author of the number one Amazon bestselling book, The Tower of Trading, and the founder of TaoofTrading.com. He has three decades of experience in financial markets, having previously held senior positions at Goldman Sachs and Citi. His mission is to revolutionise the way finance is taught by shattering long-held myths that have been perpetuated by Wall Street. But before we get into that, I've been, um, as part of my research, I've been uh, following you on Twitter, and I noticed you seem to be quite acerbic at, about talking about inflation and people who seem to have a an optimistic view of inflation. Um, so you believe that we've got a long way to go in getting it under control?
1: Yeah, I think so. And look, part of it is is we're victims of circumstance, okay? We, we had... Uh, a situation where the Federal Reserve and, and, frankly, all central banks ran monetary policy that was far too loose for far too long, and then following the COVID crisis, the pandemic, we had fiscal stimulus being dumped on top of it with monetary stimulus still way too easy. Uh, and then you combine that with uh, supply chain disruptions from the pandemic and then war, and, and, and so it's it's partially a victim of poor policy policy partially just a victim of circumstances. But, yeah, I, I don't think these pressures are going to go away. And I think that it's partly circum- due to circumstances but also partly due to design. Uh, when you look at global debt to GDP levels today, um, it, it, they're unsustainable. The, the financial system is, is very, very fragile. And, and quite frankly, if, if we spent the next decade with an average inflation rate of, say, 5 or 6%, it, it's probably not the worst outcome, to, to be honest with you. Um, it's a way for that debt to be made a little bit more manageable uh, without things like hard defaults, which can be very painful. They can result in uh, societal unrest, conflict, uh, certainly long-drawn-out kind of legal proceedings.
0: And historically, 5 or 6% uh, size interest rates aren't really that uncommon.
1: No, they're not. Um, they're not at all when you when you look back over the any period beyond the the early 90s. And, and what what happened is we we've had what what was known at the time as the, the great moderation, where we had uh, strong economic growth with really no inflation. In fact, central banks central bankers used to complain that they couldn't get hit their two percent inflation target, and uh, that was really a result of uh, well, largely a result of globalization. Uh, corporates in the developed world started outsourcing all of their manufacturing predominantly to China, and that gave deflationary forces a massive tailwind. And it looks like uh, that game is now up for, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, the pandemic revealed to CEOs around the world just how fragile their businesses have become. They've become very efficient, but with that efficiency came fragility in terms of not having real control and sovereignty over your supply chain and just-in-time inventory management and, and these types of issues were revealed to you know, were revealing in terms of how, how fragile businesses had become. The other issue, though, is within China itself. I mean, China's population is ageing; uh, it's it's uh, got a pretty awful demographic picture. And China, over the next little while—call it two years, five years, ten years—I I don't know the precise time frame—but China is going to be less interested in growth for growth's sake and providing maximum jobs is going to become more interested in stability and keeping inflation low and having a strong currency, uh, which is a real reversal of what they were pursuing in the 90s and early 2000s.
0: So what are you seeing as the outlook for markets over the next couple of years then?
1: Well, I think over the next, I mean, let's call it the next decade, over the next five to 10 years, I think we're going to see a lot of economic volatility. We, we may be getting close to the point now where inflation is, is peaking, yeah, you're right. I've been perhaps a little bit acerbic about uh, remarks people have made that inflation is, is due to peak, just looking at things like base effects and, oh, bro, inflation must be down, look at the oil price. You know, it's, it's a lot more complex than that. But we are probably getting to a point now where inflation is, is nearing a peak. But that doesn't mean it's heading back to 2%. And I don't think we're going to head back to 2% over the next decade unless something major breaks, and unless we have a major debt default cycle uh, absent that, uh, I think inflation, it's probably likely to remain in that sort of 4 to 8% range. Now, greater economic volatility is likely to lead to greater financial market volatility because there will be hiking cycles and easing cycles as that inflation oscillates. Um, but it's probably not going to be fantastic for real economic growth either because when you're in a situation where Central banks have pulled guidance. You don't know where interest rates are going to be. You don't know what your costs are going to be because you don't know what inflation is going to be like. Uh, it, it's very, it's much harder for companies to make capital expenditure plans and expansion plans, and people just tend to kind of hunker down under that sort of uncertainty. So I would say a decade of, of high volatility, below-trend growth Um, I don't think markets are necessarily going to collapse, but you you might come out of the next 10 years thinking, gee, what was all that about? You know, the stock market hasn't
0: really done anything,
1: although it's felt uh, both thrilling and terrifying at various points along the way.
0: I think a lot of beginners don't actually understand the um, relationship between stock prices and interest rates, because every time there's even the slightest change or a hint of a change... Valuations by expert investors and financial analysts necessarily have to change as well, don't they?
1: Well, that's right. I mean, rising interest rates has a couple of important impacts. Firstly, it uh, increases your cost of capital. A large part of the reason why so many unprofitable tech stocks have had massive increases in stock prices sort of throughout the, you know, I call it 2020, 2021, was because they were able to get access to very cheap funding and and that game is up you know the the free money era is over and i don't think it's coming back in the foreseeable future so that that hurts cost of funding Uh, the other thing is of course whenever you're trying to value a company traditional way of a typical way of doing that is through discounted cash flow where you, you forecast cash flows out into the future and then you apply a discount rate to those cash flows and the higher the interest rates are, the, the higher the discount rate applied to them, which
0: means that the lower the valuation. So, you've practiced martial arts. How has martial arts affected the way you think about investing and, and markets?
1: I think it's it's probably less of a, a thought process thing and more of a an emotional response thing. Martial arts, I think they they teach you to be humble because uh, it doesn't matter how how good you are. There's there's always someone better than you. There's there's always someone who can kick your ass. And and it's the same in the stock market. You know, as soon as you start thinking you've got it sussed, it's, it's going to kick you in the butt. I think it also helps you respond less emotionally. You know, a falling stock price can can be quite terrifying to people who who aren't used to it or haven't experienced it, and they can become very stressed out by it. And, and stress stress literally makes us stupid. You know, when when, when when we're under stress, our ability to make high quality decisions is compromised. You know, rolling on the mats with somebody who is trying to choke you out or put you in an armbar is, I can tell you, significantly more stressful than, you know, a 3% drop in the S&P. So I think it just helps you uh, respond to the, the emotional ebbs and flows that the market can throw at you in a less emotional manner.
0: And there's a, there's a creative aspect to it as well where you've got to be creative in the way that you respond to an opponent. And I'd assume that's the same for markets because markets are changing so much all the time. You've got to be creative in the way that you respond as well.
1: Well, I think, I think that's a really good point, actually. I hadn't thought about that yet, but I think martial arts does kind of train you into having a more flexible mindset because you're right you, you never know what your opponent's going to throw at you in a similar way to you you never really know what the market's going to throw at you you might you might think you do in both instances but uh, there's always room to be surprised uh, I, i've been doing this for 30 years and i'm, I'm surprised regularly
0: uh, well i won't take uh, any claim for that um of what i was just talking about with creativity oh, I, I, like heard it. It. <laughs> I heard it on joe rogan the other day when he was talking about mixed martial arts oh very good So many of the guests I have on this podcast believe in value investing and that the only surefire way to wealth is long-term compounding passive investing. So is trading something that anyone can do and not lose the shirt off their back?
1: Yeah, trading is something that anyone can do. And I've I've seen this firsthand through... Members that I've had go through my, my programs. I mean, my my oldest member was a, an 80 year old lady in in Queensland, and when she started with me, she she didn't even know how to open a, a second browser tab on on her web browser. And uh, yeah, within within three months, she was she was making profitable trades and and just booking incremental gains. As I teach, a lot of books have been written, you know, in the last two or three decades on why you should just, just buy the market, just buy now, just just keep accumulating, dollar cost averaging. And, and that works great in an environment where interest rates are low, economic volatility is low, and, and markets, stonks only go up. I think what people lose sight of is is how things looked kind of before the 90s, because that I think a lot of the people who are active in, in markets now, sorry, who were in, active in markets before that have probably retired or, or their voice is less prominent. But history is a, is a powerful teacher and, and lost decades of, are far more common than the just-by-now advocates would, would have you believe. So that there is a time to just keep adding, but I think that there is also a time where instead of being exposed to risk all of the time, you want to be able to identify high probability moments in time to expose yourself to risk. And, and really that's the environment we're in at the moment.
0: What, what do you mean by lost decade?
1: Well, if you look at uh, two thousand to two thousand and thirteen, S and P went absolutely nowhere. It had a couple of big rises, a couple of big falls, but over, over that thirteen year period, it, it did it, it went literally nowhere. And if you've uh, if you've been hanging on for the long term and and being a diligent investor, uh, it hasn't paid you anything. And and you know, if you look at 1969 to 1979, that, that, that was another lost decade. And, you know, if, if you look at real returns on the stock market, uh, you know, we, we've had 20, 25 year periods where real returns have been virtually zero as well. So this, this kind of idea of just shut your eyes and buy and hold on and, and don't worry about the volatility. Look, it can work in certain market environments, but it breeds, I think, a, a terrible risk discipline and approach to risk management. And, and I think, uh, people's approach to risk management is, is what's going to separate the, the winners from the losers now more so than any, any other time in the last 30 years.
0: And you don't have a long-term portfolio yourself, do you?
1: No, I don't. I, I used to, but uh, I, I just I don't see the point now. Um, you know, it was, it was, you, you alluded earlier about uh, compounding, and it was Albert Einstein who claimed that compound interest was the eighth wonder of the world. And, okay, okay, look, I think with interest rates getting back up to, to something that you can actually touch and feel, you know, that, that could come back again. But ultimately, the, the more often, the more frequently you can compound, the, the more magical it is. If you take $10,000 and you compound it at 10% per annum, at the end of five years, you'll have about $17,000. I mean, it's it's not bad, but, it, but it's certainly not life-changing. If you take that same $10,000 and you compound it at 5% per month, you're going to end up with about $335,000 at the end of five years. So you, you start talking about life-changing returns. And, and 5% per month, it might sound unrealistic. It might sound like magical thinking. Um, but when you're trading options with, with a, in a very risk-controlled manner, uh, it's, it's actually quite doable, quite achievable for anyone. I, I've got members who are doing uh, significantly better than that. So,
0: tell us a little bit about the methodology behind uh, the Tower of Trading.
1: So, the Tower of Trading—I mean, Tower just means the way—and and the reason I wrote the book is because you know, why does the why does the world need another book on options trading? There are already hundreds of them out there, and and I know because I've, I've read quite a few of them, but all of the ones I'd read were both boring. Like they're the sorts of book you'd only read if your boss was making you do it, you know what I mean? And, and that's the situation I was in. And, and they're quite difficult. And, and I think sometimes the authors you know, like to show off a little bit how good they are at complex math and difficult concepts. So I thought, well, what the world needs isn't just another options trading book, but it needs a book on options trading that is both simple and engaging fun to read. And, and the number of people who've emailed me or DM'd me and said, you know, I read your book in a, in a weekend, I can't believe it, uh, is really heartening. So I, I think I've, I've, I've kind of hit that goal in, in writing a book that's simple and engaging. And in the book, it's, it's not just, you know, setup after setup when, when to buy. People make the mistake of coming into trading thinking if, if they just know when to enter a trade, that's it, that's all they need to know. Uh, and honestly, that's it's one of the least important things. The um, the most important thing to becoming a successful trader is risk management, and and that is the thing that you cannot skirt on. Um, the second most important thing isn't your entry; it's actually your exit. All right, because if you don't exit trades profitably, there was no point entering them. Entries are important. Don't get me wrong, but it's probably the least important of the three if you're looking at entries, exits, and risk management. And then I also spend uh, a couple of chapters really deep diving into the psychology of trading because having the the correct mindset really is is what's going to separate the winners from the losers, you know, aspiring traders from professional traders. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
0: And, and how many people have become uh, professional traders based on, on your teaching?
1: So we've we've got um, we've got over a thousand members around the world, and I mean I, I only hear from obviously a, a percentage of them, but um, I'm aware of a handful, maybe half a dozen who've, who've literally quit their day job to do this full time. But that's I think that's not the ambition of most people who who want to learn trading. That the ambition is to you know, not necessarily quit their day job or, or quit their business, but but to just provide an additional revenue stream. or or provide a a way of growing their capital more quickly. Uh, I guess my my two biggest customers, if if you like, or or, 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 demand for for our memberships would be people who are staring retirement in the face. Maybe they're five years away from it, two years away from it, maybe they're even 10 years away from it, but they're asking themselves the question, you know, how am I going to fund my retirement and and not make my lifestyle take a big hit? Uh, And the other one is, I guess, more sort of millennials have been Priced out of the property market, uh, they, they can't buy their first home they've been kind of burnt in the stock market, they've been burnt in crypto, and they're, they're just really wondering how to get ahead financially and I think trading is a is a really good tool for for both of those groups and and we've got people. We've got engineers, we've got financial professionals, we've got school teachers, we've got yoga teachers. It really is people from all over the world and all walks of life.
0: Is there an aspect of technical analysis to, to your methods? Yeah, look, my,
1: my trading is purely
0: technical, really. Mm-hmm. So that's looking at those um, coloured charts, you know.
1: Looking the, at charts, yeah, yeah. Look, looking at price action. Technical analysis can, at, at the very least, it can save you from nasty accidents. If, if you're aware that a stock is breaking below the 200-day moving average, you know, that that's often a, a really big warning sign. Uh, and if if professional traders like Paul Tudor-Jones are aware of and studying things like the 200-day moving average, all of us should be. Anybody who's ever looked at a chart and, and used that to determine a, a stop-loss point is using technical analysis. The technical analysis we use is, is a little more sophisticated than that, but we we just use common indicators that are available in any charting platform. Uh, we just combine them in a what is a, a slightly uncommon way.
0: Mm. So this podcast is for beginners. Can you just give us a quick overview about what options actually are? Yeah, sure.
1: So there are, there are only two kinds of options. There are there are call options and there are put options. You buy a call option on a stock when you think the stock price is going to go up. Just remember, call up as in call up a friend. Uh, you buy a put option when you think the stock price is going to go down. Put down, you know, put down your bags. And buying a call option, it's it's a little bit like renting a stock because you get the most of the benefits of ownership of the stock. You you don't get dividends, but but you get most of the other benefits of owning a stock, albeit just for a finite period of time. So instead of paying $10,000 or, you know, $9,000 on 100 Google shares, you might spend Three or four hundred dollars on on a Google option, but the money that you make on that option, if the, if the stock right rallies ten percent, could end up being you know similar to what you, you might have made on on the on the stock. But on the downside, if if the stock falls ten percent, you know if you spend nine thousand dollars on Google Shop stock and it falls ten percent, you're down nine hundred bucks. If you've only spent four hundred dollars on the option, you're only down four hundred dollars. So there's there's kind of inbuilt risk protection in, in trading options. But uh, I, I teach people to be far more proactive on, on their risk management than that. Um, you you, you want to cut your position long before that happens and really at the first signs of trouble. The disadvantage with options is that they are a wasting asset. All right. They, they have got a finite life. You can buy Google stock and hold it, you know, for, for the next 10 years, hopefully. We don't think Google's going to go out of business. Whereas a, a Google option that expires on the 16th of December. It ceases to exist on that date, all right? So the time value of money is always working against you. Um, And that's why we use technical analysis to pinpoint and identify high probability moments in time to get exposure to risk. Like I said, rather than just sitting on an ETF or a portfolio and being exposed to risk all of the time, riding the ups and the downs, and basically crossing your fingers and hoping that
0: markets will always recover and what size stake do you need to get started in um, in doing this kind of trading
1: look i i recommend people start with five thousand dollars because it's enough for you to put a few positions on get a little bit of diversity weather some volatility some ups and downs you're going to have losing trades losing trades are just a cost of doing business Uh, i have had members start with with much less than that but uh, i I generally don't recommend it i think five thousand dollars is a good sort of starting balance
0: and you don't um, sell options because i know that you can sell options as well but uh, it's basically only buying calls and buying puts that's it
1: Uh, i do sell options but only as part of a spread which is a, a slightly more complex transaction because it involves two legs. You're buying a call and simultaneously selling a call option or buying a put and selling a put. Um, so it's a little bit more complex, but but not much. And, yeah, we, we do cover that in our
0: training. And um, that provides a level of protection, I would presume? It does.
1: It, mm-hmm. uh, it greatly mitigates the, the, the risk of uh, what we call premium decay, which is this wasting nature of options. Uh, and in fact, you you can even do a trade. It's called a credit spread, where that uh, that premium decay works in your favour. So you, you sell something today for a dollar fifty, uh, and then hopefully in two weeks later it's it's worth nothing, and you, and you get to, to profit the the money that you sold up front.
0: You talk about the myths of Wall Street. What are the five big myths of Wall Street?
1: Ah, yeah. I mean, th- th- there are many, but uh, kind of the, 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 there are five that I cover in my book. I mean, my my favourite one is this notion that ten uh, percent per annum is a fantastic return, and this is a myth that uh, I think has been created and propagated because ten percent per annum is is approximately the the long term annual return of the S and P five hundred. And through a market cycle, it's a return that uh, a financial advisor should be able to get you on, on average without really doing a whole heap of work. But if they can convince you that that's an amazing return, you'll be quite happy to pay them a whole heap of fees for, for doing that for you. But it's, the fact is, it's, it's actually not that great of a return. You know, investors with, with the, the right knowledge and the right skill set can do much, much better than that look, 10% per annum is, is great if you're already very wealthy. If you've already got a million dollars of risk capital, yeah, you can earn $100,000 a year doing that. It's wonderful. Uh, but if you've got five or $10,000, it, it really is the the slow lane to uh, to wealth creation. And then then the other big myths of Wall Street? Uh, well, another one is this notion that uh, finance is difficult and uh, investing is hard and complex. And uh, I mean, Wall Street has, has made it deliberately difficult okay they've they've created a their own jargon and and their kind of their own way of talking and communicating and and it's done deliberately to to make you feel like an outsider none of this is particularly difficult uh wall street certainly isn't uh, launching any satellites anytime soon uh and this is all knowledge that is in within the grasp of anybody who can who's got basic pc literacy you know the other big myth is this notion that uh Investing is, is sensible and, and trading is like gambling. And that there's this notion that uh, if you've got a short time horizon, you're a trader and, and you, you, you know better than a degenerate gambler. I've got a slightly different definition of a trader. I, th- I think anybody who buys a financial asset with the expectation they'll be able to trade out of that asset in the future at a higher price is a trader. So, so trading, it's, it's not a function of time frame. It's a function of purpose. So an investor is somebody who really understands a business, and buys into the business to participate in the growth in earnings and the growth in dividends and free cash flow over the very long term, and they're really not concerned about the, the asset value and the fluctuations. I mean, anybody who is worried about what the Fed might have to say, who's worried about what a company might have to say at quarterly earnings, who checks their share price weekly or monthly, I, I would actually classify them as traders. But they're probably lousy traders because they don't view themselves as traders, so they haven't learned the proper risk management framework. One of my favorite myths is this notion that high risk equals high returns. And and I think um, finance as a discipline has conflated the word risk with the word volatility. And they they actually mean two very different things. Volatility just refers to variability in price. To me, risk, it... refers to loss of capital, all right? So so what Wall Street wants you to believe is that to increase your chances of winning, you've got to increase your chances of losing. And honestly, I, I ask you, how does this make any sense at all? So what, what I urge people to do is if they want to increase their chances of winning, they've got to reduce their chances of losing as much as possible. And that all comes with Strong risk management, and then there is this uh, this notion that buy and hold is the only sensible investment strategy. You can't time the market; you can't beat the market. All of these types of uh, associated myths, saying that you can't time the market, it's a little bit like saying you can't fly an aeroplane. I mean, yeah, absolutely, you can't if you haven't acquired the skill set. Uh, but if you acquire the skill set with practice, what once seemed impossible almost starts to feel like second nature. Uh, And saying that you can't time the market really just says that uh, either you've never tried or you've tried and failed and, and you're just parroting conventional dogma. So are there any other takeaways from your book that you'd like to
0: share with listeners?
1: Look in terms of the book. Uh, so the book goes into obviously the five myths and, and why I, why I think now is a really good time for people to take control of their own finances. And then in the last chapter, I talk about how to make it happen and, and how to how to compound your gains regularly while while managing your risk. And, and I think the the point that I, I just want to hammer home more than any other point is is this concept of risk management. Because if you if you start life as a trader. Even if you're not making money through your first weeks and even your first months, as long as you're not losing money, if you stick to the process and you get really good at the process, you almost can't help but be successful eventually. It's, uh, it's people who throw their risk management practices out of the window and blow up their accounts. They're the ones you hear about, uh, and it's nearly always uh, a failure in the trader rather than a failure in the system.
0: And uh, how much time do people need to devote to trading?
1: I would say when you're learning the ropes, you probably want to be able to devote 10 to 15 hours a week, all right? And, and that might take you four to eight weeks to learn the methods, learn how to place orders, learn how to read charts, learn how to run your scans, learn how to operate your broker's platform. Once you've, you've kind of grooved things, and I, I reckon it usually takes your first hundred trades. If your first hundred trades, really, that that's like your apprenticeship. Once you've got through that, Um, you should be able to do this on average in about 20 minutes a day. So all of the trading, well, not all, but 95% of the trading I do is based off of daily charts. So I do all of my analysis when the markets are closed. Uh, I I run scans, which I share with my members, which enable them to highlight uh, high probability candidates very, very quickly. You still need to do your research, go through a weeding out process on those scan results. Uh, But instead of analyzing hundreds of charts every day, you might only need to analyze half a dozen. Um, Sometimes my trading will take five minutes, sometimes it'll take an hour, but I would say on average it's about 20 minutes
0: to half an hour a day. So how can listeners find out more? Where do people find out more about the Tower of Trading?
1: Well, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Simon underscore Rhee, or you can follow me on LinkedIn at Simon Rhee. Um, my website is www.towoftrading.com and uh, what I'd like to do, Phil, is uh, offer your listeners um, some special resources um, and, and some discounts on our memberships. If they go to www.towoftrading that's T-A-O-O-F-T-R-A-D-I-N-G.com forward slash SFB, um, they can access some resources there they can download the first chapter of my book for free and uh, and claim a discount on some of our educational programs
0: fantastic well we'll put all those links in the the show notes and the the blog post as well simon Ray, thank you very much for joining me today it's been my pleasure phil thank you if you found this podcast helpful please tell a friend especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future you'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road